Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know our sermon series is partnering along with a devotional book by Paul David Tripp, where if you're reading with us, you already knew the text for today. We're going to be talking about actual Christmas joy, part three out of Isaiah 9. The developments just read the text for us. What's crazy about that text, again, everything's new if you're new to church, right? It would not matter if it was John 3.16 or something out of Leviticus 19. If it's new, it's new. But some of us who've been in church for a while... We get lulled to sleep by familiar texts. Can I get a witness? What happens with familiarity is that I think I know. If you were with with us here in August, I got smacked upside the face personally when a a scheduling change, I think it was Pastor Roy, somebody was going to get, maybe it was Pastor Dennis, somebody was going to get the privilege of preaching John 3.16 and we needed to move the schedule around and so I ended up preaching John 3.16, most famous Bible verse in the world. And man, just when you think you know something, goodness gracious. And the reason for this is what the Bible says about itself, that it is living and active sharper than a scalpel. So I say this to those of you that have known and loved Jesus a very long time. Please do not check your brain at the door today. If you're new, this is actually easier for you because it's just new and you keep an open mind. But if you've been a Christian a really long time, it's hard to keep an open mind. You're like, oh yeah, Isaiah 9, I know that. There's always something more for us. Because the word of God is at work inside a Christian's life. The fancy word is sanctifying. Making our hearts, minds, thoughts, and actions more like our Savior Jesus. So unless you're morally perfect now. Anybody morally perfect? Please don't raise your hand. Unless you're morally perfect, God's not done with you. All right? All right. Let's see. I don't remember if I put that. No, we're going to hold off for one second. If you are reading along in the New Living Translation that we handed out and that we read a moment ago, dynamic equivalents are interpreted from Greek and Hebrew for the express purpose of making it as understandable as possible. Does that make sense? Say yes. Yes. Okay. So when you think of an NIV, the CEV, New Living Translation, it is about making it accessible to a 21st century reader. The word-for-word translations, think King James, RSV, um, ESV, New American Standard, they are working harder. They're still taking a lot of interpretive liberty, doing the best they can, but those translations tend to be a little bit clunkier because they're not going for understanding. They're going for an accuracy on a more word-by-word or phrase-by-phrase basis. And as much as I love the New Living, and I put the New Living in your hands if you're a guest, I want you to understand... There was one small linguistic change between the word for words and dynamic dynamic equivalents that I want to point out to you real quick so that we can understand the grammatical structure of verses 4, 5, and 6. Okay? The the verse 4 starts with the word for, F-O-R. What is the word for answering or responding to? 
It's answering the question why, or maybe how, for. Something just happened. So the verb in front of the word for really, really matters. This happened or is happening for, right? And in one of those word-for-word translations, you're going to see the word for at the start of verse 4. You will also see it at verse 5, the boots of the warrior and the uniform bloodstained by war. It's, there's another second four there that the, the NIV might not have. New Living def- definitely doesn't have it. And you see it again. Everybody has it at verse 6. For a child is born to us. And the reason I'm pointing out this little detail is Isaiah's prophecy is giving three reasons that we need to pay attention to in our, the structure of our sermon notes today that are all pointing back to the same thing. Okay? Verses 4, 5, and 6 in a row are three rationales for something. And we need to know what the something is, and then we need to assess ourselves by those three things and say, are we participating with these three things? All right? 2,800 years later. All right. Note takers, grab your pens. God's people will rejoice because of deliverance from slavery. Hmm. So, huh? What? Talk about struggling to empathize with a text. Anybody here right now living in the land of the free and the home of the brave? Okay. Anybody here ever physically been a slave? Right? Okay, so we've got work to do. Our empathy level is very abstract. Maybe I saw Amistad. Maybe I saw Roots. Maybe I've heard a sermon or two maybe about what Roman slavery looked like 2,000 years ago. Huge, huge gap. So back back to the context. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Raise your hand if that sounds like we're starting in the middle of something. Nevertheless, this time, referencing this dark time of despair. Chapter 9 starts in the middle of a thought. Isaiah is a prophet of Israel 2,800 years ago delivering the bad news that foreign armies are coming in. Those foreign armies will be victorious. You're going to lose. There's no point in fighting. And if you're lucky enough to live in what by 2,000 years ago we called Galilee, here where these two tribes live, Zebulun and Naphtali, the north was the only real logical access point for invading armies from Assyria and Babylon. This is where... So, question, and and you don't need to know anything about ancient history to answer this one. Are a bunch of men that have spent months slaughtering everyone in sight, are they on their best behavior when they come through town to take your food, your water, your resources? Probably not their best behavior. So... These lands, the people who lived up north during Isaiah's day, I mean, this was not, there was not a history of luxury, things going well, things, this is just not a good place to be. And Isaiah is about to give hope into this gloom. Prophecy oftentimes takes something that's very near and very far and telescopes them, and you and I, in our very finite understanding of all that God is showing us, 
we could take things that are actually 5,000 years apart from each other and we can't see the difference because you and I are small. Does that make sense? Well, I tend not to buy a lot of books and read a lot of books on prophecy. Like, I know, I'm the one who knows. Everybody else is lost as a goose, but I am the one who successfully interpreted. Listen to this. That time of darkness, this gloom, will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in which, what? In the future, when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road between the, the, on the road that runs between Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Does glory sound different than marauding armies say yes? Glory sounds a lot better. Sounds way better. The people who walk in darkness, so this, now he's using really cool poetic language similar to our journey through John. This darkness, war, bloodshed, pain, suffering, are going to see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Something good is going to happen. You, so when Isaiah's prophesying, who's the you? Most questions that I ask, you can answer if, you're, if your eyes are looking into the text. Who's the you of verse 3? You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. The you is God. You can't enlarge the nation of Israel. <laughs> Neither can I. So something big is going to happen and it's happening with this light entering the darkness and he just called it in a place called Galilee of the Gentiles. So outside of the ethnic boundaries of historical Israel, Israel's going to expand. The people of God are going to expand. Something awesome is going to happen. And as a result, its people, Israel, will rejoice. To choose joy, to exult in God. What kind of rejoicing? I'm glad you asked. They will rejoice before you. Who's the you? This before you. Is the Hebrew structure is the exact same as all of the Levitical language talking about have a feast before the Lord, have a festival before the Lord. It's like in God's presence, worshiping him, we just made sacrifices, we're celebrating our right relationship with God because of the blood of an animal. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. Like, wow. You know, we don't think of that. We don't live in a world where the harvest determines whether you do or do not live through the winter. When the harvest comes in, where you did not know if you were going to get, imagine getting a paycheck once a year and you don't know if it'll come or not. That's a big deal. The way that people rejoice at the harvest, like warriors dividing the plunder, meaning we already had victory, isn't this great? We survived the war, we were victorious. That kind of rejoicing, that kind of celebrating, verse four, four. Three different reasons that the people of God are rejoicing in light of what God is doing. Four. And here's this first one. God's people rejoice because of the deliverance from slavery. So the prophets are almost always talking about two things at once, sometimes three. And if you need any help in analyzing the prophetic, let me just tell you this. If you and I could understand everything perfectly ahead of time, we'd be as smart as God. There's something about the prophetic literature that forces Humility that crushes our pride, and I dare say it's the reason that the Western church avoids prophetic literature like the plague. We don't like not knowing. Did we build Google so that we could not know? Anybody ever typed a question into Google and just says, 
I'm not sure. <laughs> Type something into Google. Ask your dad. <laughs> Type something into Google. Your guess is as good as mine. We didn't do that. We like to know. Knowledge gives us a feeling of control. Control is how I don't depend on God. So we don't like the prophetic literature at all. The prophetic literature forces the wicked human heart to trust our creator. It forces it over and over and over. So that's why you guys looked at me like I was crazy 17 months ago when we started off with Amos. Amos doesn't allow my flesh to be comfortable in thinking I know it all. It just doesn't. Much less a text like this. For you, who's the you? Will break the yoke of their slavery. Who's there? Israel, the people of God. And lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. So, what's the immediate context of this prophecy? God is breaking the oppressor's rod, right? Freedom from slavery. What's the immediate context? A foreign invading army that is successful. And you now have to pay tribute. You have to send soldiers. Some of your people get taken away. There's an immediate... A lot of what the prophets were talking about was like immediate, what we would call politics. What's going on between nations right now? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And what's mind-bending, and what we did not wrap our minds around 2,800 years ago, we had to see it after the fact. Just like the 11 apostles, they said that the Holy Spirit opened our eyes after the resurrection. And, oh, that's what Jesus was saying. You know? What we did not realize is that prophecy has more than one layer. And what we did not realize 2,800 years ago is that the slavery that we were primarily in was slavery to sin that started with a conversation with a serpent. How many of you guys know that if a foreign army has come in and was victorious and a bunch of your friends are dead? We're Americans. We literally don't even know how to wrap our minds around losing. Do you guys realize that that's grace? That's not where you fly your flag and say we're awesome. America is in the position she is in because by God's grace he's allowed us to be here. Before that, it was Britain. Before that, it was Spain. Before that, it was the Byzantines. Before that, right? Just go back. The Mongols had a really good 40 or 50 years. Kicking tail and taking names, when the Bible says that he controls the rising and falling of nations, and yet the bad side of this is that you and I right now are struggling to imagine what it is to lose. If we're really, really honest, if Hitler could not even successfully invade Britain, how on earth was he going to make it across the pond? Americans have had the liberty of fighting wars over there. We just cannot mentally and emotionally grasp. If we shared a 2,000 mile land border with communist China, and we had a quarter of the military that we currently have, there would be genuine concern, wouldn't there? With our current military, there'd be genuine concern. You outnumber us 15 to 1. But hey, we built two Disneylands in your country, so you like us, right? Mm, no? 
We do not know what it's like to have this level of genuine concern. To the immediate hearer, to the immediate hearer, there's light where there's now darkness. There's a deliverance from bondage. The rod of the oppressor is going to be broken. This is awesome. I hope we're not just satisfied with physical deliverance though. I hope we would never be satisfied with something like that. There's so much more. If you're a Christian, I need to ask you an important question. I need you to get you to ask this of yourself. How often do I rejoice in my deliverance? Because rejoicing is the verb to which this entire text points back to. Those three fours for this, because of this, because of this, because of this, is going back to what? Israel rejoicing. The people of God are rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? This first one is about deliverance. So, I, I hate to press in again. I, we live in a nation of snowflakeism, of I'm special and I'm awesome, and, and, and the, the, the Bible just doesn't allow us to go there. Yes, Jesus died on the cross because he loves, loves you desperately. Absolutely true. But there are more reasons why Jesus came for us than just that. If you keep looking, you're going to find one answer far more than God's love for you. You're going to find that Jesus has a passionate intensity about obeying his Father and glorifying his Father. You're going to see that answer over and over and over again. These fours, why are we rejoicing? Deliverance. That structure means that at least part of the reason that God delivers his people is that we would rejoice in him. That's literally the verb. That's the main verb, our rejoicing in him. When the Holy Spirit of the living God through the gospel transforms a human heart, he not only took you from darkness into light, he not just adopted you into the family of God, he made a worshiper. So that the stuff that comes off your lips, through your mind, off your lips, out of your heart, gives God the praise that he always deserved in the first place. He's lining up your mind, your heart, and your lips, and your actions with reality. And he had to change your heart to do it. Christians, how often do you rejoice at your deliverance? I'm going to, okay, authenticity is one of our core values here, so I'm going to ask the Christians to put their hand up. Christians, is it really, really easy to just wake up and start your day forgetting that your primary identity is one who was once a slave and you are now not? Is it really easy to just move on with, I've got to get breakfast on the table, I've got to, right? It's because we're finite. It's because we're small. It's because we only have so much capacity. Isn't it a good thing that Jesus is sitting over the cosmos handling it all? It's a good thing. I personally, I've got to get back. I've got to find a way. I've got to find rhythms to multiple times a day remind myself that I have been delivered from the power of sin over me because of a bloodied cross. I need to rejoice right here, Isaiah 9. I need to rejoice in my deliverance because that's part of why I was delivered in the first place. God deserves praise and honor and glory. Some of you may have seen the Shawshank Redemption. This movie made 
several important statements. But I'm going to tell you, in case you haven't seen it or if it's been a while, I want to remind you of perhaps one of the most important statements. I don't remember this character's name, but he had been serving, I think, 35 or 40 years for murder. And he was very young when he murdered somebody. He, he, maybe it was longer than that, I don't know. But what? Brooks. Brooks, is that his name? Brooks did not remember how to function in society. He grabs a fellow inmate a few days before he's going to be let out and found a sharp object and held it to his throat and said, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill You know, if he'd wanted to kill him, he would have just killed him. But like, he's overcome with terror that he is about to be sent out into this world that he just doesn't know anymore. And the prison is safe for him because it's predictable. It's what he understands. He, if you've never been incarcerated, I, I don't know that you could maybe, or I could empathize to understand we, we have such a high value of freedom, but we don't realize that human beings need safety even more than they need freedom. He needed safety. He needed predictability. He, through a program, he's given a job as a clerk at a grocery store, if you've seen it. And when he needs to use the restroom, he keeps asking his supervisor for permission to go use the restroom. And the supervisor is just kind of, look, you don't need to ask permission to go use the, you need a, a potty break, just go. Brooks doesn't know how to function outside of this very strict authoritarian structure where you ask permission for everything. So much so that he cannot take it anymore. He has no support system. He has no friends. He's essentially lost everything. And he takes his own life after trying to be free for a little while. Christians all the time forget that we are free and we struggle with how to operate in freedom because we're so accustomed to slavery. A Christian looking at pornography is a Christian who does not realize that they don't have to do that anymore. We're not a slave to sin. That's an old behavior from an old allegiance. And I am now free. In fact, all sin. Name your favorite sin. Pick your top five. The way that a human being engages with sin, when it is our master, we obey it and we do what it says. And when it has been replaced and we have a good, gracious king who died to wash away the condemnation that sin brings and to break sin's power in our life, Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to have friends. When we get to the outside, when somebody comes out from Shawshank, do they come into a community of people who have also come out from Shawshank, who knows what it, they know what it's like? They can empathize and say, yeah, I know what it's like to think the old way. It's still hard. It's hard. Any of us trying something new without a community, it's going to be hard because all I've known my entire life is slavery to sin. And so I'm not joking and I am not messing around and I am not kidding and it is not cute. Three times a year 
when there are signups at the back of the room and I say, get into a disciple group, a Lone Ranger Christian is dead in the water. The US Army, I love them, had the stupidest marketing campaign in the whole world 20 years ago. An army of one. Oh really, did an army of one beat Nazi Germany? Army of one, just trying to play with the narcissism of 18 year olds. So stupid. Go to basic and see if they actually believe that. No, you live and die through teamwork, please. ARCF, we might celebrate and hoot and holler when the baptismal is put up here and someone is coming out of Shawshank, but they've got to be put into a family of people who know what it's like. You cannot have a new child be born and then that child just forms a family of their own and they're by themselves, feed yourself, take care of yourself. That's not how it works. When you were born the first time, somebody had to take care of you. And when you were born the second time, somebody needs to take care of you. Verse five, God's people will rejoice because of the end of war. That's your blank, you note takers. God's people will rejoice because of the end of war. Again, verse five. For the boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be what? <laughs> you don't need them. Except they will be fuel for the fire. Huh? Now, this isn't just about Americans. Nobody can wrap their mind around this one. You're sitting around. It's a little chilly. You're roasting some marshmallows and the fire's dying out. Hey, how about your combat boots and your camo? Toss those in. We know war's done, so what do we need those for? <laughs> Can't wrap our minds around it. If you knew that you knew that you knew that war was done and it wasn't even possible for it to come back, that is a world where at any point someone can look over and see God because he's there ruling and reigning. We, I don't know if it was a uh, journalist or who it was, but I thought very silly in hindsight to at the end of World War I call it the war to end all wars. <laughs> Hitler has a different idea. <laughs> the war to end all wars. I'm sure he got named that because of the magnitude. We could not have imagined something that big. I, I couldn't believe this many countries would be involved. And, and I, I hope that World War II then shows us just when we think we've gotten more evil, we can ratchet it up a notch. Hopefully, this whole progress is amazing, humanity is awesome, maybe, just maybe, our own behavior will provide enough evidence that we go, I think we need a savior. God's people will rejoice because of the end of war. So let me ask you a December 2019 question. God's people, are we rejoicing right now because of the end of war? It depends, because prophets are almost always talking about at least two things at the same time. And I don't know if we saw this 2,800 years ago when we first heard this from Isaiah, but we know from the way the New Testament talks about itself that God
came 2,000 years ago and declared peace. And that the peace only comes, Romans 5, by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on his cross to wash away the sin debt that I had before God. So if you're talking about spiritual peace, do we celebrate it? Do we rejoice in it? Do we exult in it? Do we lose our mind and cry some tears from time to time that we're so glad that we're not fighting with God anymore? On the physical end of things, are we celebrating the end of all war? Okay, so this shows us what every advent has to be like. Every single advent is looking back to Christ's first coming with gratitude, looking forward with hopeful expectation. There are components of prophetic literature at all times that you could look back and make a strong argument. You know, this king came in at this year and defeated this foe, and thus and such prophet had already said that 200 years earlier. Cool. But if you read through that same exact passage with different eyes, you go, man, that sounds like he's not just talking about Nebuchadnezzar. That sounds like he's talking about Satan. Some of you guys have been around church. You know what I'm talking about. There are, there's one particular passage. Is he talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who's now been dead for 2,600 years? But, or is he talking about Satan? The answer is yes. <laughs> Which one are we more concerned with being defeated? Well, if you're the immediate audience, you're probably more afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. Now that he's been dead for a little while, we're like, um, yeah, what's the big deal? <laughs> if you're not sure what you think of Jesus, I want to ask you an important question. Will you worship God because of who he is, not just for what he gives? And I have to ask that because anybody from any religious background could read verse 5 and get excited about God. There's nothing in verse 5 that offends a secular mind. Um, Unitarian mind. Confucian. There's just nothing in verse 5 to offend. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They'll be fuel for the fire. There's nobody upset that the God of the Bible says, I'm going to make peace one day. Cool. Sounds awesome. Go share that with somebody. Just, you know, one of those awkward conversations that you generate. If you, out of nowhere, a Christian comes up to you and tells you you're a sinner, you're offended. But if a Christian comes up to you out of nowhere and says, hey, one day there's going to be peace on earth good? Merry Christmas? Like, <laughs> it's, it's maybe odd that you just started talking to me out of nowhere, but I'm not offended. And it's the non-offensive blessings of God that put up into our heart this temptation to treat God like a genie. So this God of yours has some benefits, it sounds like. Peace on earth? Awesome. He's a loving guy? Yeah. He lets Mary sit at his feet, a role that was only for men at the time. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, this Jesus guy, he's, he's pretty awesome. And yet Jesus presents himself over and over and over again to be God in the flesh, living a perfect life that you never lived, I didn't live, dying a death that we should have died to wash away our sins. That's who he actually presents himself to be. 
That's what the four Gospels present him to be. That's what the entire New Testament, well, all 66 books present him to be. So I want to beg you, I want to plead with you not to cherry pick. There are lots of cool little things throughout this book that by themselves you could go, wow, God's a pretty cool guy. And some people across our entire planet, it's happening right now, especially in the continent of Africa, are being shown some of the benefits of God. That's all they're being told. And they're saying for a small donation. If you read all of it, you will find out that to love and worship Yahweh as the center of your existence means everything else in your life gets downgraded. Everything that I have treated as ultimate has to take second place or third or fourth. This is a God who will not share his glory with another. Just read the Ten Commandments. He starts off with like, really? I'm bossing you around and you're going to like it because I'm a father who loves you more than you love you. It's not the ten suggestions, the ten pithy ideas, ten most popular blog posts from Yahweh to the world. Ten commandments. This is how it's going to be because I know more than you, I am wiser than you, and I love you more than you love you. If you're a guest today trying to figure out what you think of Jesus, please do not allow these cool things about who Jesus is to tempt your heart. Those blessings and those benefits of being in right relationship with God, those come downstream from being reconciled to him. And we are reconciled to him because we have a heart that the Holy Spirit gave us where we finally trusted God instead of distrusting him. You love God and trust God from that heart or you do not love him and you do not trust him. You know what flows downstream? If I have a broken relationship with God, what flows downstream is death and destruction and everything we've experienced from Genesis 3, all the pains of this world, the relational disunity. And if I am reconciled to God, then there are these other benefits that flow downstream from that. But God is not playing games and he will not be manipulated by you or by me. We do not get to say I'm entering into relationship because he sounds like he's got a few lists of benefits. You are thinking like a consumer right now and I want to love you enough to push back. I make purchasing decisions based off of the list of benefits and I weigh that against the cost. And some people right now are sharing a Jesus where they only list some of the benefits and they don't talk about the cost. And Jesus said about himself, following me has a very simple, straightforward cost. The end of your life. Take up your own cross, put it on your shoulder. What? That doesn't sound super fun. When you make a purchasing decision, you don't just look at the benefits, you look at the cost. Human beings manipulate each other. You know, in sales literature, it's said often, the big print giveth, the small print taketh away. Right? And I want to make sure to scream over and over again the small print because Jesus doesn't actually allow it to be small. Jesus never says in some quiet corner, hey, you're going to have to give your entire life to me to make this work. He says it loud and clear in bold, all caps. Give me your whole life. Give me everything. I'm going long, so I'm going to try to keep this story short. I know that most of you probably woke up this morning and the first thing on your mind was, oh, I hope I get an ancient Roman history lesson. So I'm here for you guys. I want you to know I've got your back. You are looking at busts from left to right of Pompey, Crassus, and Julius Caesar, the first triumvirate. That's just a fancy word that says, oh, you guys think you have a republic? The three of us together are actually more powerful than your Senate. As Americans, we don't have, again, a concept for this. We could not imagine three individuals 
teaming up and, real, and everybody going, oh crud. When you realize your entire democratic system cannot overpower these three. So Pompey had just spent more than a decade conquering the countryside. In Roman culture, there was no greater doling out of honor than to win victories. And he needed something. Back then, you promised your soldiers pay, and pay wasn't due until you were done with the campaign and you got back to Rome. You had to figure out a way to pay the army. So he has a bunch of legionnaires, tons of honor, tons of respect, everybody's feeling good, but pay needs to happen. So Pompey needs something. Crassus, the man in the middle, wealthiest man in Rome and in the history of Rome, he formed what today we would call a fire brigade before it was an idea. So he had teams of people with buckets and closest access to water and what, this, that, whatever, that whenever there was a fire in the city of Rome, that brigade would run up to your house and say, would you like us to put the fire out for a small fee? Small was a lie. So you got to watch everything that you owned burned, including your neighbor's houses and the social pressure to say yes, or you pay this obscene amount of money. So not only is Crassus unbelievably wealthy, no one likes him. Crassus has spent decades dreaming of the ultimate glory and honor of Rome, of military victories and getting his own triumph, his own parade through Rome from a victory. He wants to be the head of an army, and you have to play the right cards to get that. So he has something that he wants. Julius Caesar, not even 35 years old, the head of the populares. This should not be hard to wrap your mind around. He is a populist politician who doesn't mind using an army when he needs to use an army. I know you've never heard of that before. That's just theoretical. Today, we tend to think, as Americans, we tend to think as the left as the one trying to hand things out and dole out freebies, and we think of the right as the ones that are more military. Julius Caesar was both. I'm going to go conquer the countryside, take all their money, and come back and give gifts to the people. He'll do both. So everybody really likes two of these three guys. He has a lot of money. He's got the armies at his beck and call and the average guy in the street loves him. Does it sound like you've pretty much encircled all power if these three guys are on the same team? Say yes. Oh, crud buckets, I believe is the technical term. If you believe in democracy and these three guys, which they did, appeared in the Senate one day and Julius Caesar is uh, setting forward a bill and these two guys are flanking him as he reads the bill, which was symbolism like we're with him. And everybody just, uh-oh. Uh-oh. All three of these men needed something. All of them wanted something. And that's what allowed this relationship to work. Julius Caesar gives his daughter, Julia, in marriage to Pompey, the guy on the left, to try to cement this whole thing. But a few years in, two tragedies happen. One, Julius's daughter, Julia, dies. So that connection to Pompey is not there. But before that happened, part of the beginning of the alliance was Pompey's legions getting paid. So they put their pennies together, paid off the legions. So with the legions being paid, and now with his wife dying, who was the daughter of Julius over here, we have this problem. Pompey has no reason to stay in the alliance. Crassus... He gets his army to go off and do his thing, and he's a fool, so he gets himself killed in Syria. So Julius Caesar is sitting there essentially alone. 
Crassus is dead. I no longer have access to his capital, which paid off a lot of Julius Caesar's debts earlier. Crassus is dead. Pompey has no reason to be my friend anymore. And I made a bunch of reforms in the city of Rome five years ago, which were technically illegal, and the Senate's going to arrest me if I go back. So the story that you guys have heard about the crossing of the Rubicon where Julius takes an army into Rome instead of just coming home to Rome, you don't take an American legion of Marines to invade Washington. That's not a thing. It was back then. Actually, it wasn't a thing back then. Julius was going to upset the apple cart. But here's the crux. We see human behavior at its height. These men needed things and wanted things from each other, and that's what made the alliance work. When they no longer needed each other, it was an entirely functional relationship. When they no longer needed each other, it fell apart. Until Julius is leading his armies, Pompey is leading the armies of the Senate in the Roman Civil War. Have any of you formed a relationship with Jesus because he brought a lot to the table? What's going to happen when you realize that he didn't bring the same things to the table that you thought because you were misguided or deceived? Or what if you're going to find out he brings other things to the table that you don't like? He makes demands that you're not okay with. You and I do not form relationship with Jesus as an equal. We've gotten really big for our britches. We think we bring a lot to the table. Yeah, I'm on team Jesus now. He's happy. He picked me. I'm going to be on third base. Mm, Golden glove for me this year. No, you're on team Jesus out of his mercy and his love for the glory of the Father. And a father-child relationship isn't like this. You don't have a child because of what you get out of it. Hashtag codependency. Next, God's people rejoice because of the birth and the rule of God. This is the verse that a lot of people know. For a child is born to us, a son to be specific, male child, is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. Are you serious? This is a big baby. No, it's talking about his future. This baby's going to grow up and something big is happening. Again, three fours. Why are the people of God rejoicing? I have been delivered. This God is ending war. And this God is going to be born. And the whole government is going to rest on him. The whole government. That means we're not voting for him. There's not a partnership with the governors and voting and ratifying and amending. Resting on his shoulders. And the people of God are going to rejoice in it. Not complaining that someone's in charge, rejoicing that they're in charge. So that means we must have a good monarch coming, not a bad one, right? And he will be called. You ready? Found a lot of ancient kings used to have a list like this, and at least one of them had a claim to divinity in it. Egyptian pharaohs did this. It was 
par for the course. No one was surprised that Isaiah is going to give this guy some names. Wonderful counselor, because apparently you and I are fools and we need some counsel. Mighty God. Huh? So he's deity. God is going to be born. What? Just as shocking 2,800 years later. Everlasting Father. Now, if you've been in church, don't get tripped up. This is not Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not his role. This is a list of character attributes. Jesus is not the Father. He's the Son. But he has a Father's heart toward his children that he's redeeming by his cross. He is eternal, and he loves his children. Prince of Peace. His government and its peace, it, the government, the peace that comes from him being in charge, that'll never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, who? Is that important? Jewish audience, do Jews care that this is going to be an ancestor of David? Do we have our own interpretation? 2,800 years ago when we're hearing this, do we have our own interpretation immediately when we hear this? Are we going to have some thoughts? All right, don't have to deal with Assyria anymore. Don't have to deal with Babylon anymore. Egypt is kept at bay. And someone from the throne of David is going to be on the throne. Except we've never heard this one before. All of this eternality language. If he rules on the throne forever, what does that make him? He has to be eternal. Did David die? Say yes. Did Solomon die? Say yes. So we are dealing with something totally different here. And the text calls him God. So how is God going to be a son of David? Merry Christmas, ARCF. Read the genealogy of Matthew 1. That when we're young, we think those are the boring parts of Scripture. Matthew 1 tells us how God can be a son of David through adoption. God was his father. Mary was his mother. He is now fully God and fully man. And yet he is still a son of David even though a genealogy comes all the way to Joseph who has no biological relationship to Jesus at all. And God considers Joseph every bit the father of Jesus to the extent that the line that runs from David to Jesus runs through an adopted father. Everybody, real Christmas joy, the real joy, not stuff, not temporary happiness, is only available to those who desire Christ's rule for everything. I know our culture has a really silly, interesting, complex relationship with absolute truth claims. We'll do things like, there is no absolute truth. And I would ask, how certain are you about that? Absolutely. Wait. Absolutely no. Absolutely. Okay. Some of you will get that later. And it is not lost on me that I'm making lots of absolute truth claims 
out of Isaiah 9 right now. Because when you find water in the desert, the only loving thing you can do is tell others you found water. And to say there's water over there is an absolute truth claim. Joy is the center of this text because it is the verb off of which these three arguments are built. God's people will rejoice, choose joy, find joy in God, overflowing in worship and praise and adoration forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Because, why? They'll be delivered from their slavery, war will come to an end, and God's going to be born. And these aren't really separated from each other if they're all coming down the pipe, right? This child who's going to be born, there's something about him that delivers me from my slavery, otherwise these wouldn't all come together. Why were they all throwing at us at the same time? There's something about this child that's going to end war. So forgive me when I am a 7th century BC Jew and I think Messiah is going to overthrow Rome. Don't judge me. It's here. The end of war and then the very next breath is unto us a child is born. I think Messiah is going to end war and I think he's going to do it now. So don't judge me. Now we were wrong. We were wrong in exactly how God fulfilled his promises, but that's because we're finite. You cannot embrace Advent, this first and second, one day second coming of Jesus. You cannot get all of the joy that God has for you if you don't actually look forward to it. A king is coming into town. Oh, really? With an army? Is that good news or bad news? Right? Is that good news or bad news? The scriptures are really, really clear that Jesus is coming back one day. And they are clear that when he comes back, the majority of planet Earth will have already decided that's bad news. So if you are a Christian right now, and you're in a Christian church, and your Christian pastor is trying to get joy to rise up in your heart through Bible teaching that, oh, isn't this going to be great when Jesus comes back one day? You need to understand that you and I are weirdos. We are asking for the king to come on a white horse where blood is going to flow four feet deep when he comes. That is why most of planet earth is not going to be excited to see him because most of us will have decided no thank you god i do not need your cross therefore i do not need this fake ascension and i do not need this whole birth of the supposed god man i don't need any of it romans 1 said that we took the truth of god and exchanged it for a lie that means we had the truth right there in our hand. We just didn't want it. And that's why all these offensive truth claims come down the pipe at Christmas time. If you do not exult in Jesus being in charge now, why would you be excited about him being in charge later? That doesn't make any sense. And so I cannot yell at you with my bumper sticker. Jesus is the reason for the season. That's not going to get anywhere with you. It's not going to accomplish anything. 
All that I can hope for is that the proclaiming off of my lips of who Jesus is, that that gospel will change your heart so you love him. That is the only hope. Brothers and sisters, I'm begging you. I've been begging you for 17 months. The New Testament makes it so abundantly clear that the gospel is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, Jews first, then the Gentile. Paul in Romans 1.16. You cannot legislate this. You cannot bumper sticker this. You cannot Christian t-shirt this. The gospel is the only thing that is going to take my heart of stone, turn it into a heart of flesh, so that I look forward to the day when Jesus comes back for me. It's the only way. And if you're a simple mind like me, you need God to be simple and you need him to be clear. There's one path forward. Right now, with candles, we are showing some anticipation. The last candle is the Christ candle. And according to the book of Revelation, that candle should be probably red. When Jesus comes back, blood comes first. If you are a Christian... Yes, you have so much to anticipate about the future. But what about your friends and your neighbors and your family? Will that be a good day for them? Christmas begs us to simultaneously thank God for all who he is, but to proclaim fearlessly who he is to everyone around us. They go together. The Christ candle is white because of his sinlessness and his purity, but Christ's sinlessness doesn't do anything for you if you're his enemy. His cross does nothing for you except condemn you if you choose to remain his enemy. Only someone who loves Christ's reign now is going to love Christ's reign later. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to do a couple of quick items of family business. Lord Jesus, we proclaim fearlessly because we do believe that it is your message of your good news that changes hearts. Not whether or not I can communicate something well or we're smart enough to receive it, and that's none of that. Jesus, those of us who do not yet love you, um, we ask that you would show your face to us. Help us to see who you are. Jesus, those of us who already love you, would you push our hearts to action that we would invite others into this Christmas season through the gospel, the only vessel that can invite someone into the Christmas season? Thank you for coming for us. But we also thank you for coming for a full world of people who have not yet loved you. And please put us on the front line of gospel proclamation and make us courageous and bold as we proclaim out of love. In the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. God's people said. Amen. Amen.